0: With these survey results in hand, I'm able to take that information and run it up the flagpole to the senior management and to talk about these are the issues of the day. These are the things we need to be thinking about getting ahead of and, frankly, getting buy-in from senior management and boards around, you know, how do we prepare for this? We were really convinced that this is an incredibly useful tool to our clients to have those open discussions.
1: Welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. And in this episode, we're talking about Norton Rose Fulbright's annual litigation trends survey, the longest running litigation focused survey of in-house counsel, NRF has conducted the survey for 18 years, led by the U.S., but in response to significant interest from Canadian clients, this is the first year that in-house counsel in Canada have also participated. In November last year, the firm polled 437 senior in-house counsel from the U.S. and Canada who shared their experiences and opinions on disputes-related topics impacting their organizations. Participants represented each of our industry sectors, with more than half of respondents working for organizations with more than U.S. a billion in annual revenue. Key among the findings was concern over employment and labor disputes, cybersecurity threats, regulatory scrutiny, class actions, and evolving ESG-related suits. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the overwhelming expectation among U.S. and Canadian in-house counsel was that litigation risk was going to increase in 2023 or at least stay the same. We take a deeper dive into these results with two guest speakers from Canada and the U.S. Our guest speaker from Canada is our National Chair of Litigation, Jennifer Teske, who practices corporate and commercial litigation with an emphasis on class actions, securities, accounting, regulatory, and energy-related matters. Jennifer is also the Canadian head of our financial institution sector. Jennifer is joined by Sandeep Savla the co-head of regulatory investigations, securities, and compliance in our U.S. firm. Sandeep's practice focuses on civil litigation and white-collar investigations involving securities, financial markets, tax, and financial products. In his 20 years of practice, Sandeep has acted in almost every major industry-wide financial investigation before U.S., federal, state, and foreign authorities. We hope this episode will be useful information for general counsel and senior litigators in decision-making related to exposure mitigation and litigation management. Thanks for listening.
2: Jennifer Sandeep. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Okay, so let's start uh, at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about Norton Rose Fulbright's Litigation Trend Survey? What is its purpose, and why should companies be interested in the results?
0: Sure. Sure. You know, what we're really aiming at through the litigation trends survey is to to get a clear picture of the issues of the day that our clients have both recently faced and are facing into the coming year. Um, And it it really helps us to set the table around the litigation and regulatory landscape um, that our clients are facing, and, and frankly, how we can best prepare and advise them into 2023. Uh, I should note that the survey is not new. Uh, It has been running for 18 years now in the United States. Um, This year, though, um, I'm excited to report that that Canada uh, participated in the survey. In so doing, we polled in-house counsel at a whole variety of Canadian institutions around their uh, 2022 experiences and, and again, what they're expecting to trend into 2023. And as we all know, know, litigation trends have a tendency of uh, finding their roots in in U.S. litigation. And so um, it's also a helpful goalpost, we think, for our clients to get a sense of what might be coming down the pike from a Canadian perspective based on the U.S. experience. Mm
1: So can you guys tell us about the, the survey process and methodology?
0: Sure. So just in terms of the uh, process itself, the survey started out with a formal uh, survey um, conducted of in-house counsel. We had upwards of 400 participants. Uh, in terms of the industries that we reached out to, it really is a full cross-section of all Industry participants, everything from retail, financial services, energy, healthcare, technology, construction, uh, media, and and others. Uh, and really, what we were aiming at was to get at the types of disputes that our clients uh, find themselves involved in, where they see um, future risk and and estimates around what the uh, 2022 state of play was and what they're seeing into 2023, um, and trying to ascribe certain values as to why um, our clients may think that certain risks are increasing or decreasing. You know, and for example, the kind of feedback that we received is, you know, our clients are expecting greater regulatory scrutiny uh, coming down the pike. They, in the cyber space, expect, you know, increased hacker sophistication. And on the employment side, they're expecting more employee demands and and potential union activity, particularly as companies and their employees head back to the workplace in a post-COVID world. Something else that we canvassed is our clients' respective levels of litigation preparedness. So what are they doing? What are they thinking about doing to try and and ward off or mitigate litigation risk? Um, And in addition to The formal survey portion of um, the analysis. We also wanted to supplement that analysis by conducting interviews of certain of our clients uh, to help inform the survey questions and the raw data that was received through the survey.
2: Mm All right, so it's a combination of the qualitative with the quantitative. And I think it is interesting as you point out that Canada has uh joined the, the survey for the first time this year. And also when we think about how uh, Canadian Council can make use of the results, not just from a Canadian perspective, but also looking to the changes that happen in the US and how they are a marker of what is to, what is to come.
3: I think what's interesting is uh, for those who are or were in House Council, and I used to be in House Council um, as head of litigation at a, at a bank, is that you really get to see what industry participants are doing in a cross-sectional way. Often when you are working at a company or an organization, you know what your entity does, you know how to advise your management, but it's, it's fascinating to be able to see what others in the industry are facing. And that often informs how you advise senior management or, or the board. One of the interesting things to me was legal spend and how prominent that was for the survey participants. And to me, that reflects the high level of sophistication and um, the increased, inc- ever-increasing level of sophistication that um, in-house counsel and in-house corporate departments have. Um, and I always say, and I said when I was in-house, when um, in-house counsel use outside counsel, it is not about the in-house capability, it's about the in-house capacity. In-house lawyers typically nowadays have the capability to do most of what outside counsel do. It's a question of capability and having the bandwidth. Um, And I think what we're seeing with the increased insourcing by in-house counsel is reflective of that trend. And so when is it that in-house counsel go to outside counsel is, is the truly interesting question, I think, behind these survey findings. And... What we've seen both at Morton Rose Fulbright, but what I also experienced when I was in-house is you're really looking for outside counsel who will partner with you to achieve your business objectives and solve business problems.
2: So you alluded to some of the findings. I wonder if we can uh, focus in on that. So um, perhaps Sandeep, can you talk us through some of the top level highlights that came out of the survey?
3: I think as Jennifer said, there's um there's an increased focus on employment and labor and um, a spotlight on workplace issues, particularly as we're coming out of COVID, we're seeing more people in the, in the workplace environment, and then with the overlay of DEI and ESG. Um, and that probably dovetails with the findings regarding um, ESG litigation, which um, only a minority of respondents reported ESG litigation but more than a quarter reported deepening exposure and anticipated litigation going forward. And we are certainly seeing that in terms of what our clients are sensitive to and what they are uh, increasingly attuned to. Uh, Close actions are a perennial feature of of the landscape. Um, Regulatory scrutiny, a uh, majority of respondents reported some sort of regulatory proceeding or scrutiny, and we are certainly seeing that on the ground at uh, Norris Fulbright, um, and we're seeing that in a multi-jurisdictional way. Um, Obviously, business is borderless. These problems are often borderless. Regulatory scrutiny is often borderless, and so we see a lot of multi-jurisdictional regulatory proceedings and investigations. Cybersecurity um, and data protection again a, a perennial feature of of what we deal with. So I think those are the um, the the hot topics that the uh, respondents picked up on, uh, which actually dovetail which with what we're finding on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, um, Sandy, from my practical vantage point as well. I, like you say, it really does seem to match up well with the trends that we're seeing uh, on this side as external counsel. Well, what can you guys tell us about any differences between what Canadian and U.S. respondents to the survey are reporting? Are there differences uh, on either side of the border? Are there any kind of different headwinds?
0: There are some differences, albeit modest differences, as between Canada and the United States. But certainly Canadian respondents seem to identify things like market volatility um and and a movement towards arbitral proceedings, for example, as things that you know they indicated they expect to see um, more of and, and influencing litigation in 2023. And I think, you know, as as you mentioned, anecdotally as litigators looking at this, it's not a huge surprise that we see an uptick um, in anticipated arbitral proceedings, for example, you know, owing to the fact that in COVID, you had courts closed and you had parties taking matters into their own hands and structuring um arbitrations in lieu of civil litigation. A- and I think frankly, parties have now come to realize that, you know, setting their own agendas and being able to work perhaps more nimbly in the disputes context context via uh, arbitration has a certain level of attractiveness as well there's no doubt that it's a quicker way to an end resolutions but just to pick up on the the market volatility piece so Canadian respondents as I said did uh, indicate that they anticipate that market volatility will lend itself to a larger uptick in disputes um, similarly you know that the risk of an impending recession, rising interest rates, heightened inflation. All of these factors were pointed to as potential issues that could influence increased disputes uh, for our clients. Canadian respondents also said that they anticipate an uptick in regulatory exposure in 2023, uh, believing that this is um, an area that they're going to need to be spending more time on as compared to U.S. counterparts. And and what I would say the takeaway, uh, certainly for us, is, you know, just a reminder, a good reminder, that when advising our clients, we need to be looking at the full picture. An in-house counsel should always be very mindful of, in that civil litigation or arbitral context, what could the follow-on regulatory implications be, and to be looking at things in a very holistic way, rather than... Um, in a siloed, you know, civil litigation lens, for example, only kind of way. Canadian respondents also identified a heightened concern as compared to U.S. counterparts on the cybersecurity side, um, pointing to uh, data protection, data privacy as um, factors that they have a an increased concern around in terms of civil litigation in 2023. Again, not a terrible surprise, not only given the increased prevalence of cyber incidents, um, but as well, given, you know, heightened regulatory scrutiny around um, such issues as well. Mm -hmm.
2: I think the regulatory piece that you uh, mentioned is something we want to hone in on, because Sandeep, you're the co-head of um, our regulatory investigations and securities and compliance practice in the U.S. So can you go a bit deeper on the findings when it comes to anticipations for regulatory um, investigations and also intel investigations? What are your thoughts around those results?
3: I think the results really um, mirror what we are seeing, which is, um, I've called it more muscular enforcement by regulatory authorities. At least in the U.S., there was a perception that under the prior administration, um, federal enforcement had scaled back. With the current administration, what we're definitely seeing is uh, more enforcement, more investigations, and just a much more muscular attitude towards um, how regulators and prosecutors deal with companies. Um, their attitudes towards penalties and the collateral consequences on companies of penalties has has changed under the current administration. There's always um, an element of uh, regulatory competition between various regulators. So you often see the u s regulators competing with foreign regulators about certain market conduct penalties and what have you. in the u s, you see competition between regulatory competition between, State actors and federal actors, and that that continues to be a feature of the landscape. I'll just say that, um, with respect to some of the differences between the U.S. and Canada, it's, it's once again an instance where the Canadians are ahead of the U.S. Um, you know, I've, I'm surprised that the U.S. respondents have not yet said that market volatility is a Um, as a contributing factor to what they're seeing. Because certainly those of us who have been through a rising interest rate environment in the past or have dealt with a market environment that's on the cusp of a recession have seen what typically happens, which is a search for yield. And once you have a search for yield, in other words, people seeking out a higher interest rate than the current prevailing uh, yield, You see all sorts of litigation coming up um, around products that are being offered, suitability to clients, um, and and regulators jumping into that space. When you see um, the sort of structural issues that have uh, come out of COVID, for example, an increased work-from-home environment, that has an impact on office leases and commercial mortgage-backed securities. So um, I think this is an instance where Once again, the Canadians are ahead of the U.S., and I suspect if uh, I'm reading the tea leaves, we're going to be seeing much more of uh, market volatility and high interest rates playing out in the U.S. and in an international environment as well.
2: I think that uh, intersect with the political that you allude to as well is also interesting when considering the regulatory landscape, because as you mentioned, you know there was kind of a scaling back under the previous administration and under Biden's administration, this used to be a ramping up. And there's also an ideological difference, I'm assuming, between at state level versus federal level. What would your advice be to companies to manage that fluid minefield, if that's not an oxymoron? <laughs>
3: Um, for, I will say that one of the things the current administration is um, emphasizing a lot is the value of compliance programs. Now, again, we've heard this from practically every administration, but this one seems to be saying that um, they will really evaluate and kick the tires on the efficacy of a compliance program. Um The DOJ in the U.S. recently released guidance, I think maybe a week ago, saying that um, one of the factors, gating factors for whether you get um, a declination or cooperation credit is whether there is already existing an efficacious um, compliance program, an effective compliance program. So um, I think that's going to put a lot of uh, focus for companies on, putting together compliance programs that try and target um, areas where the, there's risk to the enterprise. Um, so, that's that's one of the key things we're going to be seeing, I think. Um, there's also a continued focus on individual accountability, so when companies are looking and conducting internal investigations or responding to regulators, a, a feature of this is going to be uh, really digging into who did what and when. Mm-hmm.
2: And um we we recorded an episode recently on uh remediation agreements in Canada. And obviously, they're only available for a small subset of criminal offences in Canada at the moment, but I understand in the US deferred prosecution agreements are potentially available for a wider range of regulatory offences. Are you seeing any trends in the use of deferred prosecution agreements coming alongside these regulatory changes?
3: Yes. Um, uh... The deferred prosecution agreement has been a favorite tool of U.S. regulators. Um, The idea is that if you agree with the government that they will defer prosecution for a certain number of years and no misconduct takes place in in that time period, um, no recurrence of the conduct, then, then that prosecution will be dropped is the idea behind a deferred prosecution agreement. There is a landscape of what prosecutors in the U.S. can do. Um They can decline to take any action. Um, they can actually pursue a uh, actual uh, indictment against a, a company. So the um, deferred prosecution remains a tool to incentivize um, cooperation. Um, the other tool that u s prosecutors use, and it's it fell out of favor with the with the prior administration um it's it's i think more open to the current administration is the use of corporate monitors where the doj installs a a monitor to oversee compliance by by a company so um those are the things that that we are seeing in the us and i think we'll continue to see
1: i one of the things i from from listening to you both speak about the survey results i find interesting is the spotlight on employment and labor issues And, and in a sense i I don't find it surprising because um practically every in-house counsel i know who's in a big institution has some exposure to an employment and labor portfolio it's kind of the most consistent aspect of so many in-house counsels jobs because no matter what's happening with sales no matter what's happening with markets or mergers or whatever people are always coming and going, and there's always tension around that, given the importance of work to the sort of human experience. But it's interesting to hear, even, even still, there is an emphasis on employment and labor now. We've done a couple episodes of the podcast talking about the return to work and some of the interesting issues that are are highlighted with all of that. But can you tell us a bit more about what what people are really concerned about in that space?
0: We heard pretty uniformly uh, from our clients across um, both Canada and the United States that they are anticipating increased in exposure to employment and labour disputes in 2023, you know, in part owing to COVID and again, the, the post-COVID world and rising tensions potentially on return to work policies um, efforts towards unionization, um, heightened regulatory scrutiny, issues like pay equity—it it runs the gamut. That all of the issues historically that have been on the table um, are continuing to be on the table, and if anything, are heightened by virtue of the return to office. There, there's no doubt uh, that our employment and labor team on both sides of the border will tell you that. Um, the in-office work environment, just by virtue of, of what it is, really does um, increase that risk of allegations um, of discrimination and or harassment. And so it, it also comes as no terrible surprise that there is a view that there may be um, more litigation and, and, frankly, more internal investigations around such issues. Um, this is well, you know, when you dovetail into to other things like, um, you know, the I- enhanced focus on social justice and and um, issues around diversity, equity and inclusion that, you know, it's not surprising to hear that this may be prompting more people to raise issues and, and complaints that could turn into uh, civil litigation. Um, In the United United States specifically, um, it was identified that uh, increased activity from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is also fueling more workplace-related litigation around discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, and that issues around wage and hour disputes, that that's also percolating. Um, Lastly, I would say that that in terms of the data set that... um, we obtain through the survey results. It's clear that these issues pervade all business types. So um, perhaps not a huge surprise that you know we're everything from healthcare to logistics, energy, retail, technology. You know, E and L issues are identified as uh, really a key risk to all of you know all of the the businesses and and all of those industries
1: yeah and 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 thinking about them as sort of compartmentalized issues is probably the wrong way to approach it given that you know i mean i'm thinking about the layoffs for example recent layoffs in the tech sector that are i'm sure animating a lot of the answers that go into a survey like this about people's concerns and and the risk of layoffs but of course that's a risk that's connected to the maturation of an industry, market condition, market volatility that you've already talked about. So these things are so, they're so cross-connected, it's really interesting, but obviously across industries as well. Um, What about about in the ESG side? I mean, I can tell you from my practice now, I have started to see an increase in actual ESG litigation, ESG class actions relating to conduct, international conduct questions. Um, So I I can sense why that would be on someone's dashboard, but what did the survey tell you about that particular space?
3: I think what the responses show is um, increasing attunement to ESG issues. We're we're certainly seeing that. Um, The SEC has uh, proposed uh, climate disclosure rules that are very contentious in the U.S., um with respect to certain categories of companies. Um, and I, I think the cases that we're seeing on the on the regulatory front are really plain disclosure cases uh, under the rubric of ESG. A company says it's doing one thing, and in actuality it's it's doing something else. Um, it, it has been subject to criticism in the US that there's increased politicization of uh, ESG rules um and uh it fits into a broader trend where um at least some critics say the the current administration in the US is uh trying to legislate through regulation or is trying to regulate through enforcement and let's not forget the s part in the in the ESG which is the um the, the social uh part of it we are seeing um increased investigations as to labor practices along the supply chain, um, increased scrutiny when you're dealing with um, labor practices uh, in uh, developing countries that uh, make products that are then consumed by the developed world. And then just with with labor practices, increased scrutiny on uh, the hiring and, and work conditions of classes of workers.
0: I was just going to add that the the other piece that we're obviously seeing as well um, is a a very significant uptick in shareholder activism in this space, where you're seeing shareholder proposals and, and frankly, some of those proposals gaining traction in um, a way that we have not seen in years past. And that, frankly, no matter what the type of um, corporation we're talking about, no one is immune to, to that kind of, Activity so so no doubt a very significant uptick in um, the shareholder activism space um, and uh, increased concerns around proxy battle activity and the associated follow-on litigation that often results.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, Sandy's reference as well to the S and the focus on uh, labor and human rights abuses in supply chain chains will. Also, be really interesting to look at to watch in Canada in 2023 because um, Canada's version of the mo- their modern slavery legislation is um, about to go through its third reading and is expected to come into law in 2023. So that will be interesting to follow. And we have two um, episodes already looking at that modern slavery legislation and also comparing it with uh, the regimes in Australia and certain regimes in Europe too. Another. Uh, point I want to ask about the ESG trends though is, and I I take your point, Jen, about um, the increased shareholder activism, but there is also um, a bit of a trend in kind of anti-ESG activity now, and particularly when we've got an impending recession, higher interest rates, higher inflation, are we seeing certain groups of shareholders actually saying, show show us the monetary value of what your sustainability policies that you're implementing? Can you talk a bit about that anti- ESG trend.
3: There, there is a uh, certain anti-ESG uh, wing, particularly in the in the United States. Some uh, state regulators have um, issued what's been termed anti-ESG requests, um, and more fundamentally, there's a movement uh, to to say, well, if you're a company, your legal obligation. Is to maximize profits for your shareholders. So, um, and whether you subscribe to this or not, some critics say it's impossible to reconcile that with ESG goals because, by definition, when you start accommodating ESG-related factors, you're not going to maximize value for shareholders. So, the the minefield I think in big picture terms for companies is going to be how to navigate the um, obligation to exercise business judgment and maximize value for shareholders versus reconciling that with some of the ESG initiatives we're seeing. Mm
2: -hmm. Who was it? Was it,
1: I'm going to get this wrong, was it BlackRock who issued that open letters, you know, setting out what their expectations were for sort of the breadth of considerations that a, a modern investee, target company has to bring to the table for them to be engaged. I mean, it's an interesting push-pull with that philosophy. Obviously, people are going to have different views, but when that ends up as the mess that uh, internal counsel has to deal with, I mean, to, to Jennifer's point about shareholder activism, I mean, we, we work on... Uh, on activist situations all the time, both for target companies and sometimes working with activists and for internal counsel facing those, there's not really any difference between being involved in a major proxy fight and being involved in major litigation. And often the two are intertwined and there's a litigation component. So you see all these, all all these challenges, all these tensions, all these risks and concerns landing back in the lap of, of in-house counsel, have to try to sort them out either on their own, using that depth of resource, Sandeep, that, that you were talking about earlier, um, or uh, or with the collaboration of external counsel. Jennifer, you mentioned the concept of sort of litigation preparedness earlier. I mean, what what flavor do you get for what people are actually doing to, to try to ward off threats before they uh, land at the door?
0: We really heard three clear messages on this one. Um, specifically, council identified the need to bolster and tighten existing contracts as one, which I'll come back to in a sec. Um, secondly, they indicated an intention of increased training of employees on litigation risk. And uh, third, they Indicated an intention to embed lawyers into business operations more fully. Um, And and so, just going through those um, quickly, you know, on the bolstering and tightening of contracts, uh, the types of clauses that in house counsel were looking at um, revisiting and, um, you know, either wholesale amending or at a minimum tweaking were things like arbitration clauses. So, as I was alluding to earlier, this notion of let's give ourselves some flexibility, let's aim to, to, rather than you know force civil litigation, let's at least have the flexibility to perhaps consider arbitration. Um, similarly, forum clauses were something that in-house counsel identified as something that warrants a second look. And we know, of course, as litigators looking at it, that there may not even be a clear forum clause in a particular agreement. Um, and there's no doubt that Forum uh, motions are not necessarily something that um, you want to be addressing right out of the gate. And so having some clarity around where litigation and or arbitration shall uh, sit in in the context of a dispute and making sure uh, in most cases, frankly, that it's on home turf, that uh, that those disputes are being adjudicated. Um, Termination clauses also And making sure that, um, you know, what they need in terms of termination for convenience versus for breach, um, that those provisions were clearer uh, heading into 2023. On the training of employees on litigation risks, uh, things that in-house counsel identified as being really key um, learnings included things like, you know, when to negotiate, when to litigate identifying opportunities to settle along the way. And again, I'd say those findings come as no terrible surprise, because generally speaking, the theme was let's look for opportunities to negotiate rather than litigate in 2023. And as well, how can we head off litigation at the past potentially? So how can we put an end to disputes before they become um, monumental issues to a particular organization? Lastly, on the embedding lawyers into business operations, um, the thinking here really seemed to be that by embedding lawyers into the business, obviously you're increasing that dynamic and and level of trust as between in-house counsel and the business and uh, helping to, again, potentially ward off disputes before they become uh, bigger issues for the business.
3: I'll just say that I... um... I'll endorse what Jennifer said, um, and I'll I'll just add an overlay from uh, the in-house perspective, wearing my prior in-house hat. Um, You know, it can can be very difficult to explain to senior management why you are expanding resources and cost before a litigation or investigation has actually hit. And so... um, these are concepts are avoided costs are, are, are great in theory, but very hard to actually explain to senior management why you're seeking authorization to, to undertake these sort of diligence exercises. And so uh, being able to point to a sa- survey and say, look, this is what the market at large is saying, and if we don't do it, we're going to be lagging in terms of our, um, our ability to react is, is a very powerful tool. So I think I think that's very useful. The the other thing I'll say is it's it's incredibly difficult to prepare for litigation. So um, we all try and uh, think of different ways that litigation could arise. We look at market trends. We look at what's happening with uh, employees and political trends. But the reality is you often get blindsided by an investigation or, or litigation. the The other way to approach it is to also look at incentives. And um, you you see from the recent uh, DOJ guidance in the US, where they say they'll be looking at the incentives that are provided to senior executives and also for companies to take away uh, prior compensation, to claw back compensation when uh, misconduct has been identified. Another way of approaching it in a sort of more holistic way is to look at compensation and how it's awarded and the various incentives, and then to target the conduct around them. But the um the, the big takeaway I think from this survey is that litigation preparation is important. And um uh, I think the the survey makes it easier for in-house counsel to have those conversations with senior management and boards. Mm-hmm. Sandeep,
1: Jennifer, this has been extremely uh, enlightening um, and a good introduction, I think, for anyone listening uh, if they want to jump into the survey results and our commentary online about it as well. Um, So thank you so much. And I think we'll probably be back to you to talk about future surveys or uh, more in-depth issues in relation to your own very interesting legal practices. So thanks very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank
1: you
2: we hope you enjoyed this episode of disputed if you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests please visit nortonrosefulbright.com disputed also if you have any questions feedback or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com and if you would like to hear more please subscribe to disputed on apple podcasts spotify